way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've come to its conclusion here in Matthew chapter 7. And I just want to read for us this morning, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness or iniquity. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we've seen that the Lord has explained to us the difference between a divine standard and a human standard of righteousness. Um, Throughout that whole portion of Scripture, he's constantly going back to the Pharisees and he's saying, this is your rules and your regulations that you created, your form of righteousness that's not going to get you to heaven. And he had to qualify what God's demands were um, for them to get to heaven. And it wasn't human righteousness, it was divine righteousness. And so this whole sermon basically is, is summed up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, I say unto you, Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. See, it wasn't that they weren't righteous. They were. But it wasn't the right kind of righteousness. Uh, It was righteous in man's eyes. Um, And so you have to understand that this is God's kingdom, and he is the king, and he sets the rules in place. And entrance into that kingdom is dependent upon a divine righteousness that we can only receive through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, There was righteousness they knew how to be, but it wasn't the right kind of righteousness. I can't help but think today in our churches, they're filled with people who are, quote, righteous people. And uh, they have all the religious things that they practice. Uh, They go to church, they tithe, they do all sorts of things. So did the scribes and Pharisees. They prayed, they gave alms, they fasted. And yet their standard of righteousness uh, wasn't up to the standard that God demanded. And we saw last week and and a couple weeks ago actually in verses 13 and 14 in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, Enter in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And remember, these are two roads, these are two gates, and they both say this way to heaven. One doesn't say this way to hell and this way to heaven. That would be a no-brainer. Satan's not that stupid. Okay, he seeks to deceive us. So he hangs a sign over his broad way that leads to hell. This is the way to heaven. And you can look very religious if you're on that road. You can look very, um, you know, pious on that road. And you can even deceive yourself. And that's what we're going to look at uh, today. And so the broad way leads to a place called hell. The narrow way leads to a place called heaven. And to get to the narrow way, remember we talked about this being a constricted way, kind of like uh, you know going through a, a tight door you just can't fit through. Um, it's, it's important to understand that because there's a misnomer going around the church today. Well, it's easy to get saved. It's, it's just easy. Anybody can saved. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that. The, the, the offer is open to any who come, but you have to come the right way. You can't come your own way. 
And we looked at a couple things a couple weeks ago. First of all, you have to find it. Because he says in verse 14, there are few that find it. So you have to search for it. It's, it's kind of a, it requires some effort to get through that. In Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. That's the kind of searching we're talking about. Plus, you, you have to leave the crowd. He says, Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is enemy of God, John said. And, and also in 1 John 2.15 he says, If a man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You must leave the crowd. You must leave what's normal to you, what's common to you. You have to enter unencumbered. In other words, you can't carry all your baggage with you. You have to enter repentantly. Luke said in, in his gospel in chapter 13, verse 24, he said, strive to enter at the narrow gate. That word strive means that there has to be uh, some sort of agonizing involved. It's not just, oh yes, you know, my sin, oh yeah, Jesus forgave all my sin. No, there's, there's some agony involved in that. There's some sorrow involved, as we read earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. And then you also must be aware of the false prophets, because the pro- false prophets are standing at the crossroads of life. One is the narrow gate, one is the broad way, and the, the false prophets are very successful at leading you down the broad way. Well, today we want to go from the false prophets that we talked about last week, the last couple weeks, into the area of false professions. False professions. See, there's a, <clears throat> a lot of teaching in our churches today that say, well, all you have to do is just profess Jesus as Lord. Just, just say, just Jesus is Lord. Okay, you're saved. Welcome to the family. Um, see, that's that's a deception from the enemy. Is there some truth in that statement? Definitely. <laughs> There's scripture to back that statement up. J.C. Ryle, who was a 19th century English pastor, wrote this: "The Lord Jesus winds up the Sermon on the Mount by a passage of heart-piercing application." He turns from false prophets to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. And that's where we're at today. After Jesus presented these principles for entering the kingdom of God by his righteousness, by God's standard of righteousness, and he warned about the false prophets who are, who are kind of leading you the other direction, he says, let me warn you about one more thing. Just be careful about this one thing. He said, don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. In other words, are you truly a member of the kingdom of heaven? Or have you been deceived? And he breaks it down basically in in two different kinds of deception. Verbal profession, which is we looked at in verse 21 and 23 when we read that. He says, not everyone that says, or many will say to me, there's, there's a verbal profession that's being made with their lips. But there's also an intellectual kind of profession, an intellectual knowledge that people seem to get in their head and think that they're saved as a result of that. And in verses 24 to 27, he goes over the intellectual part. He says in verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these things, in verse 26 he says, Everyone that hears these sayings of mine. So there's not only something that you're saying, but it's something that you're hearing. And in verses 21 to 23, we see people in the text here who say, they say they're Christians, 
But they don't do the Father's will. They don't do it. And in verses 24 to 27, we notice that it says that there are people who hear God's commands, but they just refuse flat out to do them. And what Jesus is saying, all those people are deceived. They're all deceived. Um, John Stott said that mere verbal profession and intellectual knowledge are a camouflage for disobedience. Sometimes we get a little too comfortable in the grace of God. The grace of God is a wonderful thing. The sovereignty of God is a wonderful thing. But on occasion, I think we need a little bit of a wake-up call. There's a key word at the end of verse 21 there. He says, Not everyone shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that what? What's it say? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's key. That's key to understanding, are you a believer or are you not a believer? See, those who say they're a Christian or hear, um, hear what God says, that doesn't make you heaven bound. You, you can come to the finest church in America and sit under the finest teacher in America and, and you're still not going to be heaven bound. That doesn't automatically give you a pass to heaven. It's not just in what you say. It's not just in what you're hearing. But it's really in the, the aspect of what are you doing with your life? It's those who live a righteous life in Christ. Those are the ones that are going to make it for that word, does the will of my Father do it in the King James, is it's a very strong word. And what he's doing here, he's contrasting a right response to a wrong response to Christ's invitation. You can actually have a wrong response to Christ's invitation. You can be deceived into thinking that you're, you're, you're giving yourself to Christ's invitation, when in fact, you're not. And so, he wants us to keep in mind here that he is not talking to people who are total pagans. He's not talking to those people. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to people who have all the clothes of religion. They, 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 you know, their life is made up with prayer and fasting and alms and, and going to synagogue or church, as the case may be in our, our situation. We're not talking about somebody who's just so, you know, Defiant of Christ and, and just a total pagan. We're talking about religious people that look real good on the outside. And the people Christ spoke to were people who were deceived. They were deluded. They were on the wrong road. And he wanted them to examine themselves. It could have been caused by a false prophet. It could have been caused by themselves, deluding themselves. But a way to describe these people, Paul does it in 2 Timothy 3 5. It says that they have a form of godliness. Notice that. A form of godliness. They look godly, but they deny the power. In other words, they dress themselves up in the cloaks of religion, and yet, you know what? You don't see the power of Christ in their life at all. At all. And so we, we're looking at, at the aspect of being kind of self-deceived. 
We dealt with the, the, the false teachers, and now we're looking at you know the people who are just jolly on their broad way, and they think they're on their way to heaven, and yet they're deceived, and, and they're sorely on their way to hell. The church is full of people who aren't Christians, and they don't even know it. They don't know it. I mean, you can go on the online and you find out all these different stats and different things. And you know, Gallup has done polls, and you know, I read one the other day that over eighty-three or eighty-five percent of Americans say they're Christians. Gallup had a poll that said over fifty percent say that they're born again believers. I'm sorry, I don't know who they're polling, and I don't know what, how they make up their little straw poll, whatever it may be, but that can't be true, because Scripture says, basically, very honestly, in the text we're looking at, that there's few that believe. The majority are not going to heaven. That's a hard truth, but that's, that's what God's Word says. The minority are going to heaven. And so, a lot of people think they're going to heaven. And so our job is to make sure that they have the right message, that they've been taught the right gospel. Um, Jesus plainly says that many think they're Christians when in fact they're deceived. They're not Christians. We want to look at that this morning. He says there in verse 22 and 23, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I will profess to them, I never knew you. See, it's not just a few people who will be deceived. It's the majority. And our hearts should break over that. Because sometimes we go through life like just that. doesn't matter. These people are on a, on, a, on a road to an eternal hell. Totally apart from God forever. And we should do everything within our ministries and within our power to give them what they need to change paths, change direction, to have, see God introduced into their life and transform them. Over in Matthew 25, if you just turn over there toward the end of the Gospel, he once again kind of brings up this whole idea of being deceived. Matthew 25, look at verses 1 to 12 with me. It's there, basically the parable of the virgins here. And these virgins are symbolic of people who uh, attach to Christianity. And uh, the bridegroom in this parable represents uh, Christ. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. In other words, the ones with no oil basically had a form of godliness, but you know they had the lamp, but there's nothing in it. <laughs> but the wise took oil in their vessels, vessels with their lamps, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest you should be, uh, lest there should be enough for us and you. But 
Go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And after the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Verse 12, but he answered to them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. See, there's a day when people will expect the door of heaven to be opened. And it's going to be shut in their face. And Jesus is going to respond through the door, I don't even know you. Just leave. That's To me, that's just a fearful thing. That's, that's a fearful thing to think about. These people think they're saved. I remember the movie, um, uh, it was about the tribulation. Um, Left behind, or no, before that, way back in the 70s. Uh, about the tribulation, and, and you remember the, the, the song, you know, You'll Be Left Behind. I think Larry Norman did this song. And I remember this pastor who was left in his church after the rapture happened. Can, can you imagine? Can you imagine that I just can't even go there? Remember. Boom, the Lord comes, you're all gone, and I'm standing here. Uh-oh. <laughs> Scary thought. See, many people will think they're saved, but at the time of judgment, they will be shocked to find out the truth. Well, what causes this self-deception? What causes us to think that we're saved when maybe we're not? I think one of the first things is, is a false doctrine of assurance. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we do not believe in this church that you could, once you're saved, God secures your salvation. He gives you a deposit of His Holy Spirit, and, and He will carry that out. All right? He who began a good work, He will complete it. In other words, once you're legitimately saved, there's no way that that salvation will ever be taken away. It won't be sacrificed. It says it's secured in heaven. Our sins are forgiven, past, present, future. And so when I say a false doctrine of assurance, you know, some people get the perseverance of the saints, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that the saints will persevere because of God's grace in their life, mixed up, and they throw it out as a doctrine. Well, you just believe in that one saved, always saved stuff. You ever heard that? Once saved, always saved. Well, that's kind of a false representation of what the Bible teaches. There's a, there's a false doctrine of assurance. Sometimes people are told if they say a certain prayer, if they sign a certain card, somehow they're going to be saved. And after they do that task, after they pray that prayer, they sign that card, it, usually, in a lot of churches, they're told, now, you know what, from now on, don't question this. You're saved now because you signed this card or you prayed this prayer. And they're told not to question their salvation. And when that happens, it gives people false assurance. It really does. See, when you lead a person to Christ, when you, when you have someone who's convicted of their sin and they come to Christ, I don't think you should ever say to them, I know you're saved now. 
Praise God, you're saved now. Don't ever let anybody tell you you're not saved from now on. I think that's very dangerous. I don't know about you, but I don't have a little device that I can hold up to their heart and go, yeah, I see Jesus in there, I see the Holy Spirit in there, and they're secure. I don't see that. I only hear what they're saying to me in the moment when I'm praying with them. And they're, they're, they're praying to God. But I don't know. I don't know if they're sincere. I don't, I don't know what the condition of their heart is. Some people even go as far as to say, if you ask Jesus into your life a second time, you're denying the permanence of salvation that God gave you. <laughs> you're questioning God's integrity. That's not true at all. If you feel in your heart that you want to invite Jesus Christ to become the Lord and Savior of your life again, do it! If God is leading you down that path, by all means, do it! Some parents ask me, well, what do we do with our kids? You know, they're young, and, you know, but they, they, they pray to accept Jesus. Well, hey, just let it go. You, know, you don't need to reinforce that to them. God will do that. You know, our little granddaughter, she's probably came to Christ several times in her young life. Is she saved? I don't know. She could be, but I, I don't know. Time will tell. But I don't ever want to tell her, now you're saved, you never have to do this again. Don't ever think that you're not saved, Sophia. Because I don't know what's in her little heart. I don't know if she's doing it just because somebody did it. I don't know if she's just doing it because, you know, she wants to be accepted by her peers and sons. Who knows why she's If you ever feel in your heart you're questioning that, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Don't let someone else's false assurance take the place of conviction by the Spirit of God. If God is convicting your heart, by all means, entertain that. Ask God, what, what am I seeing in my life? People are told because they do a certain thing that, well, then they're saved and they don't have to worry about anything. And they're fooled into thinking that they're saved. When in reality they're not. How many times have you ever prayed with somebody and, you know, they quote, come to Christ and they pray this prayer and, you know, boy, you're all excited to tell everybody, yeah, praise God, you know. And, you know, three weeks later, you don't even know where this person is. They know where they're back. They're back going to drugs and whatever. So you don't want to give people false assurance. Don't tell a person, I know you're, you're saved because you did the right thing. Nobody ever got saved by doing the right thing. There's no way, really, to be honest, that we can tell whether a person really came to Christ or not. There just isn't. Charles Spurgeon said that the elect don't have a yellow stripe down their back. We don't know who God is saving and who He isn't. That's why we're to take the message of the gospel, the true message of the gospel to all. So when we look at human assurance, it's very inadequate. But when you look at divine assurance, when you look at how God assures us, well, that's what we want to entertain. In the parable of the sower, when the seed of God's word was cast out, it hit four kinds of soil. And only one kind of those soils manifested any fruit of salvation. In Matthew 13, we're going to be looking at that in a couple months. 
So don't certify other people's salvation. Because you might be giving them false assurance. Let God do that assurance. He's perfectly capable of doing that. And you say, well, don't we have to disciple them? Yeah, that's all part of it. But I think that some form of discipleship in our churches today has turned into indoctrination. Well, now that you're a Christian, you know, you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do this, you don't know, you got to dress this way, you got to do that. Hey, you know what? The Spirit of God is perfectly capable of convicting people's hearts in those areas. God assures us through His Holy Spirit. He says that He witnesses with their spirits that they are children of God in Romans 8 and 16. We cry out, Abba, Father. Second Peter says, when you manifest godliness, brotherly kindness, um, love, patience, self-control, all those things, that you're basically making your election sure when you see those things in your life. Let God give them assurance of their salvation. We don't need to do that. We're not to be in the business of that. So you have this false doctrine of, of coming. Assurance that, hey, if it comes from God, that's great. But a lot of it's not from God. Also, there, there's a problem with people failing to examine themselves. When's the last time you honestly sat down and examined yourself? People never examine their Christian lives. They come to church on Sunday and then they go home. And they come back to church on Sunday and they go home. When's the last time you read through the book of Acts? He said, man, why don't I have this kind of a desire to meet together with the, those who love Christ and fellowship and read the word and pray? Why don't I have that desire? Is that abnormal? How many times have we seen people come to Christ and they're just on fire? They're legitimately saved and they're just on fire for the Lord. And it's almost like we want to take them and separate them from the rest of the church. So they don't become like everybody else. Oh, yeah, 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 wear off. <laughs> Give him a little time. He's a little hot under the collar now. He's got saved, you know. Kind of embarrassed to be taken out. He wants to witness to everybody. <laughs> what a horrible thought. <laughs> See, that happens when, when we, we, we put too much emphasis on God's grace and you know, we, we talk about God's forgiveness in a way that, you know what, when we sin, hey, don't worry about it. It's all covered. It's in the insurance plan. That's not the way to look at it. As a matter of fact, the Bible says when we sin, our hearts should be grieved because we're grieving the heart of God, and that should drive us back to God to confess our sin, to say the same thing about our sin that He says. That it stinks, that it's rotten, that it's unholy, that it's unrighteous. We should be stricken in our hearts. Because you know what? We're all nothing more than sinners. That's our default. We run to sin. We desire sin. And we have to constantly be willing to examine ourselves. And I don't think it should just be on Communion Sunday when we have communion once a month. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, Examine yourselves and see whether or not you're in the faith. If you do that, you're not going to be in danger of self-deception because you're, you're going to be constantly looking at your life. 
lining it up with scripture and saying, well, gee, you know, this is a sin that's not going away. I wonder if this should cause me concern. We need to examine our motives. And if you're genuinely saved, God will confirm that by His Spirit witnessing with your spirit in Romans 8.16. That's what He says. And if that confirmation isn't there, then you need to stop and, and, and look at, well, what is my testimony? You know, sometimes when we hear people's testimonies, you know, I'll ask people, you know, well, when, when did you come to the Lord? When did you get saved? Well, I've always been saved. Uh, red flag. What do you mean you've always been saved? Nobody's always been saved. I mean, I don't say it that way, but I'm, I'm wondering, okay, we'll share a little more. I'm not saying you have to have a time and date because some people don't. They grew up in a Christian home and they just realized one day that, hey, you know, this is the right thing to do. And they made a commitment to God and they lived their life ever since then. But we need to examine ourselves. Third thing there is we get so fixated on religious activity. We think that because people go to church, they hear sermons, they sing songs, they write songs, they read the Bible, they go to Bible studies, whatever it is, they're completely involved, immersed in religious activity. Well, they must be saved. There are many people in our churches today who do a lot who are not saved. They're not saved. The Bible calls them the tares among the wheat. But just because your life is a religious life doesn't doesn't mean you have salvation. And the other ones there is kind of a form of self-delusion that occurs when a person sees something wrong in his life and he, he doesn't do anything about it. He finds something right in his life and, you know, well, yeah, you know, I, I got this thin issue in my life, but, you know, I am, I am serving the Lord in this area, so it's kind of a wash. <laughs> it's kind of like stealing from your employer, but, you know, you know they haven't paid me anyway. It's not a big deal. See, that kind of person always trades off bad and good deeds in their life. And they look at the, all the good in their life and they say, well, I can't this bad stuff. That's just over there in the corner, in the dark corner. Nobody sees that. That's okay. Because I'm doing all this good stuff. I know I sinned, but I just did a good deed, so I'm sure God understands. So therefore, you never deal with the sin. And you can actually de deceive yourself by that kind of a false assurance. By failing to examine yourself. By fixating yourself on religious activity. By having this kind of swap in your good and bad deeds in your life. Somebody sent me an email months ago about a group. It's actually a friend from Southern California. And I forget the group's name, but it was two guys. And they're going around in churches and they're singing incredibly talented musicians. There's only one problem. They're openly homosexual. And they say basically, well, we're Christians and you know we believe in Jesus and you know uh, yeah we're, we're, we're homosexual but it's uh, the way God made us. And they're actually in a lot more of the liberal churches um, promoting 
that whole agenda. I saw in the, the paper twice this last week, maybe you saw it, I saw it on Saturday Mercury News, a big proposition against um, Proposition 8, the, the thing for marriage. And uh, by the way, if you're a believer and, and you're, you're wondering whether or not you need to vote for this thing, uh, it's kind of a no-brainer. All right? Uh, we want to always protect the institute of marriage. And in no way is that putting any kind of restraints on, on homosexual lifestyle or whatever. It's just saying, you know what? A man and a woman in a marriage, that is something that God created. And it's something that needs to be protected. And I saw this big ad. I said, you know, it mentioned all these churches, probably 20, 30 churches in the Bay Area that were against Proposition 8. And they were for the openly gay lifestyle and everything. I mean, it was amazing. And, and the whole thing, they, the, the part of the, the, the article said, you know, uh, Jesus, something to the effect of Jesus is compassionate, not judgmental. Something like that. Um, you know, these people are sorely deceived. The bottom line is, do you live in total obedience to the Word of God? Is that your sense? Is that your desire? Do you sense a form of conviction when you disobey? And then go on and, and confess that unto the Lord. See, one telltale sign is, if you can sin and you don't care, it doesn't bother you at all. There's a problem that's a fair statement to say, you know what, if you can just go out and openly sin, and it doesn't, God doesn't convict you, you can stop and say, boy, you know what, is God in my life or not? Am I saved or not? There's, there's, you know, we can go down this road, and, and, you know, you hear people say all the time, you know, I made this decision for Christ when I was you know, eight or four or five or whatever. And, you know, I've talked to parents through the years that, you know, well, my boy's a good boy. Was he a Christian? Yeah, yeah, he came to Christ when he was two or three or four or eight. Okay. What? Well, you know, since that time, we, you know, he comes to church because we make him come to church. He's involved in all sorts of bad behavior and his life is just a mess. But he's a Christian because he made this prayer. He said this prayer. They're deceived. There's, there's, there's something wrong there when a person, a Christian, can go out and just openly sin and there's no conviction in their life. Does that mean we're, we're, we're going to live perfect lives? No. We all sin in a myriad of ways, probably daily, before a holy God. But hopefully when we do that, God convicts our hearts. Well... What are the characteristics of self-deception? Um, how, can I, how can you know if you're being deceived or if you're legitimately saved? How can you spot a self-deceived person? Well, is that person seeking feelings? Is that person just looking for blessings and experiences and healings and miracles and all sorts of things? That's usually a byproduct of a faith that isn't faith in itself. It's a, it's a wrongly placed faith. He seeks what he can get, not what he can glorify God for. He's more interested in, in pampering himself 
than exalting God. That's a dangerous thing. Is the person more committed to a denomination or a church or an organization than he is to hearing the word of God? I talked to one individual a couple weeks ago at a church up in Woodside and they're part of this church and they were telling me, you know, the frustration they have because it's just a very, very liberal church. And he was saying, you know, it's like they're more concerned about having a community drive for used up fluorescent balls than they are taking a stand for marriage or against the, the unborn. Protecting the unborn. And I said, well, what are you in that? And why are you there? I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't last two hours in some place like that. I'm driving nuts. And been part of this church and it's always and I thought man how sad how sad is that committed to a denomination or a church or an organization but not committed to the word of God and you hear it all the time you hear people uh, I talked to a friend the other day you know and, and uh, um, down at the coffee shop and the, the conversation turned spiritual and uh, he went on to tell me how he was raised in, in the you know, Christian home and his grandparents were ministers and everything. And I thought, so is that supposed to negate the time that you used the cuss word in our conversation up to this point or the time? You know, it was just kind of weird because it didn't match up with what he was telling me. Deceived. Is the person involved in theology just for academics? I had a friend my time went to seminary and everything and great education. Nice guy. And, you know, it's interesting because it's like, what are you doing with that now? Not even using it. It's purely academic. It's a person overindulgent in the name of grace. In other words, you know, we can do this, we can do that. Are they constantly kind of buffering up to the line of sin, saying, oh, you know, if we slip and fall, it's okay. It doesn't matter. I mean, you know, we got to be careful of those things. A person who lacks that kind of a contrite heart is most likely deceived that they put their faith and trust somewhere along the line and that's what they're holding on to and God hasn't done anything in their life since then. Jesus says in verses 21 and 22, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord. See, we've kind of got caught up in this thing. Well, just say it. Just pray this prayer and you'll be saved. And we take Romans 10, 9, Thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. I believed that before I was saved. If you ask me, I confess it. I wasn't saved. They say they're Christians, but they don't do God's will. What's he mean when he says, Lord, Lord? That phrase, Lord, Lord, it appears in, in verses 21 and 22. And it appeared over in, in the, the uh, parable of the, the virgins in Matthew 25. 
The first time it's said, it's probably used as a term of respect, of recognition. It means master, teacher, sir. In a sense, people were saying, you know what, we respect you. But here they say it twice. The second time, it may emphasize the orthodoxy of their claim. That word, Lord, curios in the Greek, really, it's, it's kind of used for the name Jehovah. See, there are people who say, we know that you're God. We accept all your deity involves your virgin birth, your miraculous life, substitutionary death, powerful resurrection, intercession, second coming, everything. They have all the right terms. They, they dot all the I's and cross the T's. See, the fact that people here use the phrase, Lord, Lord, it kind of indicates their, their passion about what they're trying to prove to him. They will address Christ with this intensity, with this respect. And also, you see, there are three times used in, the, in, the, in your name or in thy name. In other words, people will say to them, you know what, we've done this, we've done that, we've preached, we've cast out demons, we did miracles, all these things, and we did everything for you. They'll sound like Christians who were very passionate and fervent about their, their private devotion and public ministry. And the Lord said, you know what? You respected me. You were fervent. You preached and worked for me. Come into the kingdom. If you do that legitimately, your heart was in it. If you did it for the right reasons, if you were a true believer, he's going to welcome that. But the response is not so here. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Psalm 6, 8 says, I want to confess to you. Uh, Christ will say, uh, that was a quote from Psalm 6, 8. And what he's saying is, I want to confess to you that I never knew you. That word know there, it's not that you didn't know about me. Okay? Because God knows everything, right? So it's not like Jesus is like, oh, who are you? What's your name? I don't know you. No. That's not what he's saying. We're not talking about an awareness of who someone is. See, that word know in the Bible over and over and over again is oftentimes used to speak of an intimate relationship. In Amos 3.2, God said to Israel, You only have I known of all the families in the earth. He didn't mean that the Jewish people were the only people he knew. He was saying that he had an intimate relationship with them. In John 10, uh, Jesus says, my, he, my sheep hear my voice, and I what? I know them. The best example is probably over in Genesis 4.17, where it says that, Cain knew his wife and she conceived. Doesn't mean that well, I know who you were, obviously. They had an intimate relationship. 
The word know embodies that intimate relationship. So Jesus is saying here to these people who come to him saying, boy, I did this, I did that. And he turns to him and says, you know what? I never have had an intimate relationship with you. Depart from me. You say, why does he ask him to depart? Workers of iniquity. See, instead of doing the Father's will, they did their own thing. See, it's not what you say that gets you into the kingdom of heaven. It's what you do. A profession of Christ is, is worthless unless your life backs it up. I mean, we're in the, the midst of a, a, a political race, a presidential race. And these people are saying all sorts of things. I was watching a news program the other day. What really do you think these, of all the promises, both candidates have made, do you think any of them are going to be able to do any of it? And a small percentage of what was actually probably, maybe even going to be considered to be uh, done if either one is elected president. It's just words. See, Peter said, basically, you can't add virtue to your life not there, you're not saved. James said, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead. So you can profess you're a Christian all you want. My question to you is, well, show me. Show me. What is God doing in your life? It's so important that we understand that the Christian life is more than just coming to church and, and you know, parading ourselves around like, like some kind of spiritually elite people. Um, that's not what the Christian life is about. Amen. In Matthew 6, 10, in the, in the disciples' prayer, he said, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, we, may, we must be consumed with doing what God wants us to do. And the problem with our churches today is they're too consumed with doing what they want to do. Christians today are consumed with what they want to do, not with what God wants them to do. See, we're responsible to let God's will be done here on this earth. It's not going to be done through Him. He's not here. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. That's why He left us here. But what happens when we fail? What happens when we sin? That's That's... You know what, what? What the prayer was on to say? Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. We know we're going to fail. We're not going to be perfect. The righteous standard Jesus spoke of assumes that we'll fail. But when we fail, what do we do? We want to confess it. First John one nine indicates that we're continually confessing our sins. And when we confess our sins, we give evidence that we're being forgiven. So you don't go to God and ask Him for forgiveness if you're a believer. Because the forgiveness has already been granted. But you go to God and you say the same thing to God about your sin. Hey, I know this grieves your heart. It grieves my heart. Because I know it grieves your heart. It's really kind of a pain. And it keeps on coming up. And I'm sorry. You know, I just want to just say the same thing about this sin that you say. That it's wrong. It's not honoring to you. Give me the strength to overcome it through your spirit. The only people who confess their sins are forgiven. 
That's the only way you can be forgiven is when you confess your sin. See, Jesus didn't say in the Sermon on the Mount, here's the human standard, here's the divine standard. By the way, you're never going to keep it, and, and so you're just out anyway. He said, I know you're not going to be able to do this. That's why I've given you the Spirit. That's why I'm here to help you each step of the way. Well, where do you start with doing the will of God in our lives? You start by believing in Christ. You start where you have to start. Uh, God wants all men to be saved. That's what he says in 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. Are all men going to be saved? No. But that's his desire. It's not his decree, but that's his desire. And the only thing acceptable to God... Is a, in, 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 as far as righteousness is concerned, is the product of a repentant heart. Of somebody who says, they look at their life and they say, you know what, my life is filled with sin. I can't carry this anymore. I need Christ. That produces good works. So you can paraphrase what Jesus said here in Matthew 7, 23. I never acknowledged you as my own or known you intimately. You were forever expelled from my presence because you continually acted lawlessly. That's basically what Jesus is saying. It's interesting because his words came as a shock to these people. And they began to recite all these things that they did. A lot of these things are very uh, dynamic. I mean, when's the last time you saw somebody cast out a demon? When's the last time you saw somebody do a, a miracle in your presence? There's going to be people that make claims that they can do these things. And you just have to, you know, it's not that God can't do these things. God can do a lot of these things. He doesn't have to use an individual to do them. But it's interesting to me that these people... They're standing before the Lord or claiming all this miraculous stuff. And a lot of it we see still going on today in certain churches in the name of Christ. But a lot of it's untruthful claims. A lot of these people who are, quote, getting healed are not getting healed. A lot of these people who are driving hours to a Benny Hinn conference. You know, finally get in the building in the wheelchair only to be put in the back somewhere. Because they don't meet the standard of people that are going to get healed. I mean, do you really think that if, if God wanted to heal people, and He does, and He can, and in any way He wants, that He's going to have to use somebody like Benny Hinn? Come on. This is crazy. What do we do with these things? Did they do these things or not? Well, they could have done them. They could have even done it by the power of God, if you think about it. In Numbers 23, 5, the Lord said, the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. And then Peter said, Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. See, he was an evil prophet for hire, but God used his mouth, didn't he? God worked through unregenerate people at the crucifixion of Christ to carry out his will. 1 Samuel 10.10 says of Saul, the apostate king of Israel, the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied. In John 11, you see that the Lord put a prophecy in the mouth of Caiaphas, a vile high priest. 
So don't think that God can't do miraculous things through people who don't know Him. Because He can, and He does. So maybe these people, God actually did these things through these people. We don't know. Maybe they were empowered by Satan himself. Who's the master of deception. According to Acts 19, Jesus basically acknowledged that some Jewish people had probably cast out demons. And he said, if I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do you, your sons, cast them out? And so, you know, obviously, that can be done. God allows it to be done. And it can be done in Satan's power. Or maybe they were just using trickery. I don't know. They really believed that they did these things. See, the sad thing here, basically, the bottom line of, of what we see here in our text this morning, is what people thought they were doing were good things. Jesus counted that as lawlessness, as iniquity. So sometimes we have the potential to get things a little mixed up. Would you agree with that? We look at our lives and sometimes we think that oh, everything's hokey-dokey, everything's fine. And God's up in heaven going, what are you thinking? You know, what are you thinking? Your life is so messed up priority-wise, I couldn't speak to you if, you know, if I had a hammer, hit you over the head with. You're just, you're, you're just not even in the realm of of, of me getting a hold of your attention because your life is so filled with other things. That grieves his heart. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And I leave you with this question. Are you doing his will on a daily basis? Are you constantly seeking to do the will of God? Or has your will kind of overridden his and, and his, his has kind of got lost somewhere? We need to pray about that. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, I, I pray that as we look at this passage, you know, our heart does grieve for many people who think that they're on the road to heaven. But Lord, we know that your word truly says that there's only one way. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. It's not through a church. It's not through a denomination. It's not through doing acts of righteousness. It's by coming before you broken in our sin. The Bible says that you loved us so much that you, you died for us, even when while we were in our sin. Lord, you don't expect us to clean ourselves up. We can't. That's the whole point of the cross. That's the whole point of Jesus going and dying on our behalf. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who has yet to put their faith or trust in you, to cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, they can do that quietness this morning. That's a prayer that you will hear this morning. Lord, maybe there's there's those here this morning who don't see you as active in, in, in their own life. Lord, maybe they did make a commitment one day and years ago and since then it's just been life as usual. 
Father, they have every reason to doubt that you ever even saved them. Because, Lord, you're a God who is intimately involved in our lives. You're a God who steps in and convicts us of sin when we commit sin. You're a God who cares for our needs and attends to us and lifts us up and exalts us in times of trouble. Helps us out of the pit of sin, Lord. Your word is so clear that you're not a God who saves us and just steps away. Now you're saying, I'm leaving the building. No. You stay in our life. You're intimately acquainted with all our ways. And Lord, unless we see that, we have reason to doubt our own salvation. Nothing wrong with examining ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. And Lord, I pray that that would be for each one here this morning. That we would look at ourselves, look at our own hearts, look at our own motives, look at our own desires. And Father, that you would either confirm our salvation or Lord show us our need of the Savior. Father, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.